I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a special guest for you. Yay. Dr. Cherise Sullivan graduated from Cornell University in 2010. Before that, she got her undergraduate degree in animal bioscience at Penn State, and then she went on to complete a master's degree in veterinary science at Tuskegee University. She's originally from Washington, D.C., and after graduation from veterinary school, she relocated to Houston, Texas. She's still there today. She's the owner of Skyline Animal Hospital. Dr. Sullivan has experience in general practice, emergency medicine, and shelter medicine, and her special interests include surgery, neurology, behavior, and exotics. Since veterinary school, Dr. Sullivan has promoted diversity, equity, and inclusion in veterinary medicine. As a student, she was the first president of National Voice, in addition to being Cornell's chapter president. She was also a SAVMA delegate and chair of the Multicultural Student Outreach Committee. She continues to mentor youth through programs such as Big Brothers Big Sisters and Black MBA Association's Leaders of Tomorrow. In her free time, she enjoys traveling and spending time with her twin toddlers, husband, and golden retriever. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the podcast. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Excited to be here. We are so excited to have you. And now, when I first sent you a message about being on the podcast, the reply that you sent said, I am an introvert. <laughs> so I am perfect for your podcast. And, it, and, and not only did it say I, that I'm an introvert, but that I have high functioning anxiety as well. And so we're yes. always super excited to hear from veterinary professionals who have the same, uh, who are in the same situation that we are mm-hmm. as far as introversion yes, and anxiety. <laughs> so you identify as an introvert. Yep. How do you think that has impacted your career in veterinary medicine? I think that it's been a challenge for me, particularly uh, sort of transitioning from being a student to being a professional, the fact that I have to do so much communication with clients and things of that nature can be very challenging for me, but it's just something that I learn and grow from. You know, I have been diagnosed multiple times with adjustment disorder and anxiety with depressed mood, been in therapy or under treatment like most of my adult life, and certainly navigating Systemic racism within my education and career has been a huge factor in that. Oh, yeah. I also was a military kid growing up. So moving from place to place during my childhood, then from school to school as an adult sort of factored in as well. So that's sort of my background. And that's an exclusive. That's the first time I've ever talked about my own personal mental health on a podcast. So, um, So, yeah, that I bring all of those things to the table in my entire comprehensive self. Um, And I just have to learn how to manage those things in order to, you know, be the best veterinarian I can be each day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That is a very brave thing to do. You know, I think 
as as much as we have moved forward and and made strides in you know the mental health field and kind of reducing the stigma surrounding mental health issues that you know they're still pervasive and so i think the more veterinary professionals who say hey gosh i suffer from this too i think it, i think that it's helpful for people so thank you so much mm-hmm. for for being willing to share that with us oh thanks well, Dr. Sullivan, one of the main reasons that we reached out to you is that we wanted to talk about the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, of which you are the president. So the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association is a 501c3 nonprofit that basically exists to um, support BIPOC veterinarians and veterinary professionals, as well as provide outreach and education about multiculturalism and cultural competency. Um, we originally started in 2014 as a Facebook, originally by Drs. Kara Williams and uh, Rachel Cesar Martinez, um, and they were looking to fill a need for a professional organization similar to um, the student organization Voice. There really wasn't any type of, at that time, multicultural organization that that emphasized more than one culture at that time. Um, so they founded it at that time, uh, very grassroots. And in 2017, they were able to get a couple of other board members to join on and start the founding board, which included our past two presidents. The last immediate past president was uh, Dr. Marie Quicksall. And then the president before that was Dr. Tina Tran both uh, original founding board members. Um, And then in 2019 through 2020 is when MCVMA saw a lot of growth. Unfortunately, a lot of that stemmed from the killing of unarmed Black men and women, including George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, And so there was a large increase in interest in what to do to promote DEI and support BIPOC colleagues in veterinary medicine. And in 2019, we were able to have Nationwide join on as our founding sponsor. And then in 2020, we officially registered as a 501c3. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So the organization is relatively new then, and it's been growing. I was telling JJ, you know, and I'm dating myself a little bit here. I, I graduated in 2008 from vet school, and I, you know... I admit I've blocked out some parts of veterinary school, <laughs> but we all have. I don't remember. <laughs> um, I don't remember there being a multicultural association, and I could be wrong about that. But I I don't know that there was. But I was so excited to find out that now there's this national organization because mm-hmm. I think it's it's really necessary. It's really needed. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So, Dr. Sullivan, how did you become involved with the group? It sounds like uh, the transition to a national organization was fairly recent. Were you in, involved directly or did you kind of, you know, come in um, come in as a member of the Facebook group or initially or how did that process go for you? I pretty much saw, uh, was just, you know, on social media and I saw MCVMA sort of kicking up some good noise on, on the social media platforms. And uh, when I investigated further, I saw some familiar faces in 
Dr. Marie Sato Quixal and Dr. Kara Williams, who um, were also past presidents of Voice. So I recognized them and immediately knew I wanted to be involved um, with MCVMA. So I reached out to them, decided that I would dip my toe into another uh, board position. And then somehow I ended up being president-elect. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the goals of the MCVMA. Sure. So at MCVMA, our vision is to transform the veterinary profession into one that's equitable and inclusive, mm-hmm. where people of underrepresented races and ethnicities are valued and supported in their careers. Uh, which results in all communities receiving the benefits of veterinary medicine. And our specific goals are to create a space in which veterinary professionals of diverse backgrounds can network and educate each other. And we do um, that via a lot of our online panels and workshops. And um, we are planning to also launch a uh, message board directly from our our website, in addition to our ongoing uh, Facebook page. And we also have a, um, a closed page for those that are looking to support DEI in vet med. So why is the focus on multiculturalism in veterinary medicine important? So we know that we live in an increasingly multicultural society, but the demographics of our profession do not reflect that. Roughly about 90% of veterinarians identify as white, whereas 60% of the U.S. population identifies as white. So there's a noticeable gap there that, as we discussed, is higher than most professions. And we need to do a combination of two major things. So one, we need to educate our existing clients colleagues about the importance of cultural competency and sensitivity so that they can better serve their clients, even if they're not of the same cultural background. And also, we need to bridge the gap so that we're able to better serve our diversifying communities and clientele and ultimately help more animals. And in addition to that, a third thing is that We need to be able to support each other as colleagues and understand our own individual backgrounds and particularly be welcoming to marginalized groups as a profession. I'm going to be honest here. I did not ever realize or I guess uh, didn't think about it, showing my privilege there for sure, the fact that Veterinary medicine is not a very diverse field as far as ethnicities and and cultures go. And it actually wasn't until I started my master's work in counseling and uh, found out, you know, that uh, the the therapy career is actually not very diverse either. Okay, in the in the therapy curriculum, your professors will come out and say like therapy is a super white field, you know, who goes into therapy, white women, you know, and they'll just say it. And I had never encountered number one people, educators talking about race so openly before, you know, of course it's counseling. So yeah, you're, we talk about everything openly, (laughs) but, um, you know, they kept saying, you know, gosh, therapy is such a white field. We want to encourage participation from other cultures, others, other ethnicities. 
And so I was like, huh, well, let me dig into the research about this and see. And when I dug into it, you know, therapy is not a very diverse field, but veterinary medicine is way, 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 way less diverse than Mm -hmm. even therapy where they're like, we are not diverse enough. And I was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And I was reading an article. Oh gosh, I should have pulled it up. Uh, Maybe I can pull it up real quick in a little bit, but I, I was reading an article actually that was featured on VIN, a veterinary information network. And the doctor who wrote the article was saying like at that time, which I believe was either 2018 or 2019, the percentage of African-American veterinarians, like of the profession as a whole was like less than 1% to the point that it didn't even like register on the chart. It like rounded down to 0.0. And I was like, oh my God, what? And then, so I was like, well, let's see what it is now. And I looked and it was like, it improved a little, but only to like 1%. <laughs> I was like, no, we got to do something about this. Like, yeah. we got to do something about this. Because, you know, uh, way more than 1% of your clients are going to be from another culture. And so I think it's important to make sure that the profession of veterinary medicine mirrors the diversity that you'd see in the general population. And But I had no idea. Therapists that identify as white is about 71%, whereas the U.S. population is, uh, that identifies as white is roughly about 60%. And what we know is that there are people who are BIPOC that are not receiving the help that they need. And there are a lot of barriers to that, you know, stigma, fear, uh, cultural language differences. But a lot of that also is the fact that the providers do not reflect those who need the care. And those who we know there are certain risk factors, those who are multicultural, um, Indigenous American and LGBTQ are at higher risk in mental health screens. And speaking as far as uh, the professional realm, you know, there's sort of a saying amongst uh, Black upwardly mobile professionals is that the higher you get is the lonelier you get. You get. Oh, yeah. So, Gosh. you know, the more advanced that you get in your education, you're going to see less and less people that look like you. Um, you're going to have increased challenges. Um, you are certainly going to experience some form of uh, discrimination or systemic racism um, as you climb. And um, and we've definitely sort of got to fill that gap. You know, we consider and also the American Medical Association considers racism a mental health issue. Racism causes racial trauma and microaggressions are a form of racial trauma. And almost, you know, pretty much every veterinarian of color that I know of has told me that they have experienced at least some form of constant microaggression. And, you know, we've got that on top of major traumas like, you know, the killing of unarmed Black people, and then you're expected to go to work like nothing ever happened. So so there, there are a lot of gaps even just in that sort of mental health field and wellness section when it comes to that intersection of race and ethnicity that certainly has leaked into veterinary medicine. I think, um, and JJ and I were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, JJ, so I'm kind of stealing your the, the your kind of main point, so I don't want to do that. But would you feel comfortable talking about how 
when you have encountered, you know, either overt aggressions or microaggressions against other cultures, you kind of don't know what to say. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been teching since 1996, and I was telling Dr. Greider, I've worked at multiple different practices, and that's something that, I mean, I have observed is that I always noticed that it does seem like it's not very diverse at all, but every single job I've ever had, I've witnessed some form of racism, be it, you know, with clients. Uh, in some cases, it was other staff members. In some cases, it was, you know, management and owners of the practices. And some of it was, you know, being young and not being young and also growing up in Alabama. Unfortunately, a lot of it was the norm and which doesn't make it cool at all. But as I've gotten older, I've been more of like, this is not something that needs to be tolerated. But I'm not really sure what avenues to take, especially if it's management or practice owners that are, if it's clients, I mean, the answer is very easy. You're out of here. But if it's, you know, someone who's an authority position, just kind of more of like, I don't, I don't like it, but I don't know what to do type situation. Yeah, that's, I've definitely been in situations where I felt a similar way as far as like, I'm not sure how much intervention I should take. What, you know, what should I do? What is me overstepping? You know, and, and I think sometimes what we talk about in therapy curriculum a lot in my multicultural classes, sometimes the paralysis that you feel of like, I don't want, I'm so afraid of doing accidentally the wrong thing that I take no action at all. Mm-hmm. And that is very damaging. So, yeah, yes, agreed. And I think that that's something that is sort of ingrained institutionally as far as organized veterinary medicine. I mean, everybody is scared to make a move and allyship is not something that, you know, you're born with. It's not like an innate thing. Nobody, you know, we want to expect people to do the right thing and not to say anything that would be questionable or hurtful or damaging to another person. So I highly recommend and MCVMA really advocates for allyship training, like organizational professional allyship training, so that when you get in those, you know, those situations, you're more comfortable being able to take some form of action. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to take physical action and intervene between two people or that you have to necessarily verbally say something to, you know, stop the interaction. You know, a start would be as simple as if you see somebody who may have been hurt by the interaction, just checking on them later. You know, hey, um, I saw that interaction that happened. I just want to check in on you and see how you're doing, if you're okay. And I want to let you know that, you know, um, I support you and, you know, I see you. Yeah, definitely any information you have, like, you know, where where can you go to take any classes or uh, any information on that would be perfect. There are a number of like different organizations that will offer allyship training. Um, And, you know, that's like an easy like Google type of thing. Um, One of the websites that uh, we work with that um, has a good allyship page is the Anti-Oppression Network. Um, So it's primarily um, dedicated to to the indigenous American cultures. Mm -hmm. 
And they define allyship as an active and constant and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating in which a person in a position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with a marginalized group. So like I said before, allyship is not something that you're born with. It's an active practice of learning and unlearning and reevaluating things. And definitely it takes a certain amount of risk on mm-hmm. the part of the person who is the ally to put themselves out there, which is extremely hard for introverted people. So that whole, you know, jumping in the middle of an argument and putting both hands out is probably not what an introvert is going to do. But there are other things, you know, that we as introverts um, can do. Um, just communicating with other people uh, of color about social justice issues. Like I said before, sort of breaking down the bystander effect, checking on that person, seeing if they're okay, lending a hand. Is there anything that I can assist you with to make you feel more comfortable in this space and support you? Always centering the impacted person, you know, and that way you can leverage sort of, you know, your inherent privilege um, without having to be in sort of a power struggle. And then also one thing that we really talk about a lot is sort of yielding the floor and allowing space for BIPOC colleagues to, you know, speak, take up leadership positions, um, et cetera. Good. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. I have a, a, a great interest because I feel like that might help with the not knowing what to do a lot. So what are what are the ways that veterinarians and staff can best serve clients who come from other cultures? Yeah, so I always recommend learning about and engaging with the culture of your local community. So start local. Reach out and see what their needs are and how you can help. Go speak to schools. I recently spoke to a veterinarian at a conference who was trying to connect with her local indigenous community. And, you know, I suggested to her you know, make some connections with some of the K through 12 educators and see if you can come and talk to their schools about veterinary medicine. Be surprised at what those kids like bring back to, you know, the the parents and, you know, how grateful the teachers are that somebody is out there reaching to the children in their community. And that's the type of good word that spreads. And, you know, another thing, you know, um, that you can do within your clinic is If you're in an area that has a culture that speaks another language, hire and compensate appropriately some bilingual staff and and treat them with high value because they really are your connection with that community. I think the recommendation for prioritizing a bilingual staff is just a great one. When, When I have been in situations, of course, I've worked at lots of different places as a relief vet. When I have that staff member there, that can speak more than one language or or even uh, situations where we are working with clients who are in the deaf population and someone knows ASL. It makes communication one million times better mm-hmm. because you're talking about really complex subjects. Sometimes there is a like a learning barrier, even if you speak the same language, but it just just multiplied when you're having to go through a translator. Oftentimes it's a child that you're having to, mm-hmm. you know, go through to translate and you're telling them up setting information. And it's just, so having someone on the staff 
is just wonderful. So I, I love that recommendation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I know you talked a little bit about um, getting involved in the community and getting involved in um, some schools, but is there another way to encourage a broader range of cultures in the profession? One is to, you know, support and value those who are of different backgrounds who are already in our profession. Because, you know, if people from the outside see that marginalized people are not welcomed and they're not treated well in our profession, then there's not going to be very much incentive for them to join on board. Mm -hmm. And another thing is to, I really, really believe in the power of mentorship, mentoring um, specifically. BIPOC youth, I think, is really, really critical. A lot of BIPOC youth sort of make their decision on what they're going to be as far as a profession based on the support that they received. And I mean, you even see that. I mean, it's not limited to just BIPOC youth. It's a lot of youth who make those decisions. You know, I was randomly in an airport one time talking to a physician and he was like, oh, I'm a foot doctor. I'm like, what made you decide you want to be a foot doctor. <laughs> and he was like, because my biggest mentor was a foot doctor. I said, I want to oh. be just like him. It's hmm. like, I had no interest before that. So, you know, there's a lot of barriers uh, to mentorship, specifically for BIPOC youth. Um, I've had a lot of pre-vets tell me that they weren't able to get access to internships or summer jobs at vet clinics. And unfortunately, hmm. um, in some cases where their other white classmates have been extended an offer, even though they also applied to the same place. Um, so there are, there's definitely some some bias um, and discrimination that we need to break down when it comes to access to uh, mentors. Um, mm-hmm. And it it doesn't. What we know about mentoring is that same race mentoring is not a requirement. There's a concept called critical mentoring that suggests that anyone um, can be a mentor to BIPOC youth as long as you've got an open mind and reception to uh, understanding the background of that individual mentee, specifically when it comes to cultural uh, considerations. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that uh, yet again something that I had not thought much about, but absolutely veterinary students perspective veterinary students from different backgrounds might face significant challenges in finding some place to even just shadow or do volunteer work so that's something that we as a profession need to work really hard to change Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah you can't get into veterinary school without that sort of experience so what about on the practice management and administration side the and the and even the veterinary professional side, how can the the leaders in say general practice settings support multiculturalism in their individual workplaces? Yeah, so uh, the MCVMA um, has taken a lot of thought in this, and we had a um, or still have um, an ongoing initiative called uh, Wake Up Vet Med, um, mm-hmm. where we sort of magnify the um the challenges with discrimination and unequal opportunity in veterinary medicine and um so one of the things that was a part of that initiative was a list of actionables for organizations and um 
a list of actionables separately went out to the AVMA, who is our major governing body for our profession. And um, we also listed a set of actionables for other organizations, which can include industry partners, clinics, basically any, any type of organization. And it starts with a self-assessment and an understanding of where you are, where you currently stand in your organization or your clinic in relation to DEI. So the AAVMC has a tool for assessing organizational diversity and inclusion on their website. Um, so it's literally like a checklist that you can go through and see where you're at and make some goals on where you want to be in the future. And as far as looking at sort of the existing implicit bias in the organization, we recommend the Harvard Project Implicit Bias Tests, which is just an online test that you can take. And you can get links to these on our website under our initiatives, or you can go directly to wakeupvetmed.org, which will pull that page up for you. Some other parts of the actionables are um, increasing accessibility, uh, making sure that you are accountable and transparent in your DEI efforts, making sure that you're providing equal opportunities and expanding membership and leadership opportunities to all people, um, specifically targeting marginalized groups, making an organizational commitment and preferably making a public organizational commitment. One of the organizations we like to highlight is a rescue called Red Rover. Um, and you can just like Google that. And they literally have basically um, where they started and what their goals were as far as DEI, hiring um, BIPOC individuals in certain leadership positions. And they have basically like the date that they hired the person and this is the person. And so that, I mean, the whole wide World Wide Web can, you know, hold them accountable for that. And uh, another thing is making uh, investments. So um, that can include a financial investment. Um, very often we recommend that uh, people invest in things like allyship training and bystander training and various other DEI trainings. And, you know, when people are doing that work, it takes a lot of not just, you know, organization and, you know, the presentation, the physical energy of the presentation, but a lot of the times it's a lot of emotional work, particularly when you have uh, BIPOC people who have experienced these things and they are sharing their experiences with you and mm -hmm. their traumas with you, you know, they should properly be compensated for that. Um, so, so it does require an investment. And um, the last thing, which is the thing that most people want to jump to is outreach and engagement. So that's where a lot of times we see people reaching out and 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 they want to immediately jump to outreach and it, it comes off as performative allyship. So we just want to, you know, oh, we just want to have our name on a billboard, but we don't really want to do work. We just want to like attach ourselves to, you know, say, hey, we're doing this for people of color. But, you know, all of the leadership and everybody behind this is white and none of the people of color uh, in our organization have been consulted about this um, <laughs> and their needs aren't really being met, but we're not worried about that. We just want to yeah. look good in public. Mm. So yeah. that should really be your last step is doing outreach and engagement because 
once you've gone through all those steps, you can make it a lot more authentic and really make a real altruistic effort towards DEI. Mm-hmm. So if uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, even though it's tempting to kind of get out there, do the outreach, be very public about everything, before you go that step, the first thing that you need to do is handle your own situation, like get your own house in order exactly. before you start being public about everything. Exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. As far as membership in the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association is uh, like who all can join? Can can just any veterinarian, any uh, support staff? Is it veterinarians only or who all is uh, is allowed to take part in that? Yeah. So anyone who's in the veterinary field can join. And that includes um, veterinarians, um, but also support staff, technicians, industry partners, and academic partners as well. Um, You can go to our website, mcvma.org, and click on the header where it says Get Involved, and then you'll go to membership. Uh, Membership is an affordable for most $25. Um, And we encourage everyone Mm -hmm. to um, join us. are sending out quarterly newsletters, um, and we also will have discounts for our annual RISE conference where we have a curriculum of all BIPOC speakers speaking on um, their subject matter um, expertise. Um, so we'll have some specialists talking about that. We'll have some um, lectures talking specifically about various aspects of DEI and veterinary medicine and and that can range from wildlife ecology, equity, interclinic dynamics. So we had a really great time uh, in 2021, and we are excited to continue that virtually in 2022 uh, in November. So stay tuned for the announcements on that. Yeah, I saw that on the website. I was yeah. very interested in that. Is that something that support staff can participate in as well? Absolutely. Yes. We had a number of technicians and uh a couple of administrative staff who participated last year, and we really enjoyed having them there. So, Well, Dr. Sullivan, you were very vulnerable with us earlier and, and shared that not only are you an introvert, but you've dealt with some clinical anxiety. How do you think that it's been different for you navigating those experiences as a person of color? Are, there, are those issues compounded by the lack of diversity in the profession. For sure. You know, I think as I was talking to some colleagues, the fact that every day I went to vet school, I walked down this hallway with pitched class pictures up of every single class that had ever graduated from Cornell. And it was just a sea of white people. And there was this one <laughs> class yeah. that had about six Black people in it. Um, one of my friend's classes that graduated. And I would often stop by that picture and be like, gosh, I wish I was in that class. Like, (laughs) I wish I had, you know, more support. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was almost like a feeling like every day I walked down that hall, I was hoping to see more people that look like me show up. And hopefully when I go back, um, you know, I'll have a better experience with the newer classes that have graduated. But just I mean, little things like that really sort of take an emotional toll on you and then not having any professors that look like you that you can, 
you know, talk to, and I'm, I'm grateful for um, certain professors that I did have who were white, who really sort of understood where I was coming from and took the time to really check on me and make sure that I was okay. But I mean, that was like one or two versus, you know, the the support that I saw a lot of my classmates getting from various um, professors. So, you know, I, I went through, even though I consider myself a high-functioning anxiety person, I was doing a lot of stuff as far as leadership. Um, I was also undergoing a lot of health issues um, during vet school and, you know, just experienced a lot of uh, microaggressions, you know, professors, other students saying that I didn't belong there. Oh, and gosh. unfortunately, when I, you know, recently had a talk with the Cornell Black DVM Network, it was like, man, I, I was talking to a Black student who graduated, um, I believe, five years after me, and then another Black specialist who had graduated, I believe, something like six or seven years ahead of me. And we, all three of us had the same experience. So... Mm. You know, while we're out here, you know, trying to make changes um, as far as MCBMA, and I do think that we are moving the needle a little bit, but there's still a lot of work to be done um, in order to make our profession more diverse and inclusive. So, yeah, I mean, all of those things definitely factored into um, my mental health. And, you know, we know that, you know, experiencing constant stress, um, when it comes to racial trauma, microaggressions, et cetera, um, can actually affect people on a molecular level. So, you know, it's no wonder that, you know, that spurred some medical issues in me. And um, what we do know is that minorities sort of experience uh, mental illness as far as um, morbidity at, at disproportionate and much higher rates, disproportionately lacking in access to mental health treatments. Um, and then when we do receive treatments, it's likely to be inadequate compared to treatment received by non-minorities. So one aspect, even though I was seeking help, I was actually given a misdiagnosis during med school oh. that, you know, actually became a challenge as well that I yeah. would, that wasn't discovered until after I had graduated. So there are sort of a lot of things to unpack here, but, you know, it's not, um, Racism and discrimination is not an innocuous thing. Yeah. You know, it's not something that is just, you know, a one time incident that's brushed off. This is something that starts, you know, as early as childhood, adolescence. We know that uh, Black and Spanish speaking adolescents are at an increased risk of major depressive disorder. And actually, having a higher socioeconomic status increases that risk. Mm. So imagine all of the upwardly mobile BIPOC professionals trying to, you know, get veterinary degrees, medical degrees, et cetera, and what they're going through. Yeah. So, you know, and that's something that starts in childhood and unfortunately lasts lifelong. So I consider myself in, you know, lifelong need of mental health um, treatment and therapy. And I try to encourage specifically people of color to explore the option of therapy if they need it. I, you know, I have come to terms with this is what my life is and this is what I need to be successful. 
and uh, happy and and healthy, you know, not just from a mental perspective, but from a physical perspective and an emotional perspective too. And um, the alternative is, you know, not something that I would be willing to risk, particularly with all of the other veterinarians that unfortunately we have lost to uh, mental health illness and suicide. Yeah. So um, I encourage all vets, specifically those who are BIPOC, who are in need of mental health care students. That is one of the most stressful times of your life. Yeah. If you need to talk to somebody, therapy is so accessible now with all of the virtual platforms. I personally take virtual therapy now and, you know, hopefully we'll make some strides in making it more financially um, accessible in the future. But, um, you know, I, I definitely want to make sure that just as the organization says, we, we have not one more vet that, that we lose to, to mental health, health illness and, and, and suicide. Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I think this is going to be a really helpful talk. Yeah. Uh, I'm was, so glad we did this episode. I was looking forward to this one. Yeah. It really was. Oh, thank yeah. you so glad. much for having me. I've enjoyed speaking with you both. So the name of that article uh, that I was talking about from Vin was actually published in 2020, but the numbers uh, were from 2019. And the article is called On Being Black in a Very White Veterinary Profession. And the author is Lisa Wogan. And I believe the VIN News Service is available to everyone. You don't have to be a member of VIN to see the articles, I think. Like, I feel 99.9% certain about that. Okay. Well, now, before we sign off, we're going to do our favorite thing. And Dr. Sullivan is going to join us. Mm -hmm. So... JJ is going to lead us off. JJ, what uh, what's a favorite thing for you this week? I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it is. Uh, I was proud of myself for uh, accomplishing a task that required a uh, a lot of uncomfortableness, okay, <laughs> and anxiety. Yeah, where I had to go on to the base here in town, the military base. Yeah, okay, to um to get some uh, important things for the new job. Yeah, and it seems like it would be something that, I don't know, to me, it seems like for the normal person, it'd be something just easy to do. Sure. But from the moment I found out I had to do it, I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the whole, like, I mean, I had like three weeks to think about it mm -hmm. and like freak out about it. And like, I was looking at maps, trying to figure out exactly where I needed to go. And I talked because my husband's had to do the same thing in the past, but it's been like 10 plus years since he's done it. So he's like, I don't remember. Like, You're not helpful. And I couldn't take anybody with me. I couldn't have a buddy. So, mm -hmm. but I, I did it and I didn't die. So no, <laughs> I was proud of myself when I got out of that. <laughs> I was like, I did it. And I didn't like, because normally with those situations, I'm at the last minute scrambling. Like, I need a buddy. I got to have somebody to with take me. Someone with I can't you. do this by myself. Okay. I'm not a grown head. But they person. wouldn't let you take someone. No. Mm. No, I mean, if oh, I no. found somebody that, you know, had access to the base. Gotcha. But I, I'm like, you know, I need I need to do this. I need to. You yes, uh, Yeah. I just need to do this. Now, was it one of those situations where you dread something and procrastinate and are like uh, just like wrecked about it? And then when you do it, you're like, that was not that bad. Why did I spend weeks freaking out about this? Um. 
Kind of. There kind was no procrastinate, no procrastination, just because I mean I had an appointment, right? <laughs> but yeah. I mean I was an hour early to my appointment. All right. And I mean <laughs> I had a checklist that I was going over and over and over, like okay, here's what I need to do, here's where I need to go. Yes, it was. It was sad, but I did it, damn it. You did it, JJ. I, I can it. identify with the checklist, all of the preparation. Mm-hmm. I'd super get it. But you know what? You thought about what you needed and you accommodated yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a win. Yeah. All I right. put my, my, my big girl shoes on and I, <laughs> I adulted. <laughs> but I was, I was telling Ben, I said, I think that because right now there's not a lot going on with the job. So there's not a lot of, other stress happening. Gotcha. So I was way better able, which doesn't sound like it, but for me, I thought you did a good job. I mean, I just, you know, went in there and said, here's what I'm for. Here we put, here's, here's, here's what I'm for. Here's why I'm here. (laughs) What do I need to do? And most everybody was very nice. And I handled my business. I am so proud of you for adulting <sighs> and I am not being facetious. I am. It's hard. I sometimes. know how hard it is. I know it's hard. I mean, virtual high five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. <laughs> Sullivan, what about you? <laughs> um, so this uh, week I took my kids to the rodeo. Oh, and um, so, yeah, very Houston, Houston things. Houston rodeo is a huge deal around here. So that was their first time going to the rodeo and they had a blast. And it's interesting because I told uh, one of my colleagues recently that my kids are my biggest source of anxiety now, but they're also <laughs> my biggest source of joy and comfort. Oh. So, you know, navigating them, those crowds, I'm like, <laughs> my son almost got ran over by an alpaca. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that fell off. And I'm like, what an alpaca? What the heck kind of rodeo? <laughs> now, or if people are riding wild alpacas, then I sign me up for this yeah, rodeo. It was, it was like fun. an alpaca like parade, like people were walking <laughs> oh, well. a parade like, through the grounds, and like we were trying to leave. My son's shoe came off, and he's screaming. He jumps down and runs <laughs> after it, and this alpaca like almost just clobbered him. <laughs> That oh, no. is amazing. And I, I now I want to see an alpaca parade. That Have sounds amazing. Alpacas when they get mad, but they do. Yeah. I've unfortunately had to medicate several alpacas in the middle of the night in vet school and they try to punch you with their front feet. It's really uncool. Well, that or they or try to hit you with their like head. Yeah. They sling that. I was like, what are you doing? That's got to hurt. Uncool. Uh, yeah, that would that would definitely be scary when you have a child that's in that vicinity. Absolutely. Well, I'm gonna, big critters. I'm going to edit my statement and say, I would like to see a parade of happy alpacas. From a distance. <laughs> not, <laughs> not angry ones. Okay. Well, so, um, so my favorite thing is something that is going to be coming up. So... Mm-hmm. This time of year, right, where we're recording this, you know, we're a little bit ahead of real time, okay? But so when this episode is going to be coming out, it's going to be the time of spring when it's time for me to go to the plant store, okay? And there, if you're in Huntsville, Alabama, where we're recording, there is a place called Bennett's Nurseries, and it is amazing. It's, it's plants... But it's so much more than plants. It's like tons of greenhouses and they have walking trails. And if you go on the weekends, a lot of times they have free barbecue and free drinks. Like you can go, so you can spend the day there. 
You can, can bring go, your pets too. You can bring people. your pets. Well behaved ones, mm-hmm. not alpacas, probably. Yeah. But yeah. so you can go, you can have a drink, have you some barbecue. Sometimes they have live music. And then you can just walk around and look at the plants and you don't even have to purchase anything. Although I always do. So I feel like this is a good marketing strategy for them. But mm-hmm. sometimes I just go there on a day if I'm feeling like, ugh, like I just need something to kind of, you know, jolt me out of however I'm feeling. I'll go there and walk around. So anyway, if you live in Huntsville, just know Bennett's Nurseries is there and you should give it a whirl. And in the spring, they will have all sorts of events. So that's my that's favorite exciting. thing. Nice. I wonder if they ship to Houston. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you have stories, questions, concerns, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.